boys are trained to externalize our pain. When something bad has happened to us, we need to do something bad to somebody else. Avenge uh, the humiliation that we've suffered, the shame that we've experienced. To me, that's such a basic and, and, and an incredibly important part of what is going on in the violence pandemic in our society. Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast tackling gender bias through conversation. I'm Annie Rogaski, and this is the second episode of the fall season where Sam and I are looking at some current events or societal themes that we see emerging where the man box may have some impact or some insight. And then we talk about those topics. Today is a somewhat more difficult topic than we usually talk about. All of the topics that we talk about generally are pretty serious and we try to bring a little lightheartedness to the conversation because it's hard to just get mired in serious topics all the time. This episode though is the most serious that we've tackled. It deals with gun violence and I wanted to just let people know up front that we're going to be talking about that in case this is an issue that you are not able to listen to. We tackle it from a different perspective than what you might see in the media. We try to understand the gun violence and mass shootings that we've seen over the years through the lens of the man box and share some personal stories and perspectives that might help us understand um, what we're seeing and how we might take some steps personally in our lives to minimize the occurrence of gun violence in our world. Before we dive into my conversation with Sam, I just wanted to share something from some of the research I did around the connection between gun violence and masculinity. I want to preview this by saying this is, of course, not all men. This is not every form of masculinity, but there are certain forms of masculinity that do seem to have a connection to the gun violence and particular mass shootings that we've seen. One article that came out after the El Paso shootings that I wanted to just share a quote from, uh, this was in the conversation, and I'll put a link in the show notes. They write, feminist scholars have long focused on men's violence against women, tackling issues such as rape, sexual harassment, date rape, stalking, online abuse, incest, domestic violence, and murder. They argue that behaviors associated with masculinity are not necessarily natural, but are learned. This has led to important theorizing about the negative effects of hegemonic masculinity, which pressures men to adopt a hypermasculine, heterosexual, and anti-feminine gender identity, and implies that they are not a real man if they do not. Toxic masculinity, meanwhile, encourages men to resort to anger, aggression, and violence against women, other men, and children, and indeed the planet itself. So I hope this episode gives you some food for thought. I hope it also gives you some actions you might take in your daily life to help those around you. This problem is a big problem to tackle and it will take all of us. So with that, 
here is my conversation with Sam. Thank you, as always, for listening. Well, I figured this topic, no matter when it is released, will be relevant. Which is a sad statement. Very sad statement. You sent me this topic last night, or yesterday, and I got it last night. And, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, boy. So you're fully prepared then, Friday fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah, so I sent that to you. And then since then, I've looked at a few more things. And people are starting to make the connection between not so much the man box, but masculinity and how we define it and people getting shot with guns. And so it seemed like a good topic to tackle. What first made me want to talk with you about this was a connection I made between, it might have been that article or another article that I read where they were talking about the loneliness and isolation and anger and violence that seemed to precede some of the mass shootings. That reminded me of things that you said last season, which is that the man box has that impact on men of isolating you emotionally from other people and that isolation takes different forms and you talked about things like drinking and drugs and suicide and violence and it seems to me that that's exactly what we're seeing and mass shootings are in the headlines but aside from mass shootings and there's a whole spectrum of violence and gun violence that is probably triggered by the isolation that comes from the man box training that we teach all of our men. Yep. I think this topic is interesting because every time there's a mass shooting, it's the same dialogue and same debate that happens after each of them, and it goes absolutely nowhere. So the articles that you're referring to, I agree with you, they're talking about basically the man box, how boys and the construct that uh, has been created for boys and how they become men and what they're allowed to feel and not feel and how they're um, allowed to express themselves in a limited way creates these men that their only outlet is through anger and violence. Just going back to what we talked about last season and pretty much every episode, men are trapped. I like to think about men, even violent men, and even these mass shooters as boys. I have two boys, and I know when they were two, three, four, five years old, how just pure and just almost androgynous they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the, the nature and nurture of growing up and then getting into school, how I see that kind of get whittled away from them. And I see my own kids, my own boys, making these choices that I know are influenced from other boys at school. That, I don't think, is going to really change too much. However, how we educate our kids and the services that are available to them um, and getting the dialogue started and the conversation amongst boys, between boys and girls, between parents and boys, that needs to change. And it, it's needed to change for a long, long time. And so I'm glad you know, that the, the dialogue has shifted into, oh, these were just sick people. You know, mm-hmm. Guns don't kill people. It's just, this was a sick individual. You're damn right he's sick. I mean, most men in America are sick. They're on a spectrum of sickness. When I read the article or saw the article, 
it, again, no pun, but triggered a bunch of feelings that I have on this topic. Mm-hmm. And when you say men are sick, you're referring to like how we have created a definition of masculinity that is detrimental to men. Is that what you mean? Or do yes. you mean something else? Yes. Okay. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I feel like I can express myself fairly well. It doesn't always translate on this podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> I have my moments. There have been times in my life where I've let feelings that I've had get to a point where they're either intolerable or bordering on intolerable. Mm. And I don't get ahead of it. And it's not an active thought um, or decision that I'm making, but somewhere in my DNA as a man, I feel like, man, if I go talk to somebody, that's admitting defeat. I should be able to deal with this and move on myself. And so that's hurdle number one, just accepting that I have a problem or an issue or a a feeling that I'm carrying around or something that's rattling around in my head that I can't solve myself. Mm -hmm. How many men out there get over that hurdle? Not enough. So that's hurdle number one. Hurdle number two is finding someone that you can talk to that you don't have to pay Mm -hmm. through the nose for. Mm -hmm. And I have really, really good insurance and finding someone within my network where I don't have to pay them $200 a pop, I don't want to say impossible, but it's damn near impossible. After I get over hurdle number one, there's hurdle number two, and I'm given a list of people within my network that are either 15 miles north, 15 miles south, maybe a couple in my, um, in my, you know, within my vicinity. But that really limits you to the people that you can go and see, and you have to have a connection with that person. So that's the second hurdle. And speaking on my own experience, I've gotten over hurdle number one lots of times only to be stopped by hurdle number two. I can't Mm -hmm. get over that second hurdle. It's not to say that I haven't gone to therapy at different points in my life. Um, And even saying that, admitting that like publicly here is a hurdle, you know, to say that, yes, there, there are times in my life where I haven't been able to process something alone. So somebody who doesn't have really good insurance doesn't have that inner dialogue and understanding that they have a problem that they need to be, you know, help, help through. Yeah. All these factors contribute to isolation. That is a really nice way of laying out the hurdles. As you were talking, I was thinking of, um, my own experience and as I was listening to you, I was thinking, is this a, is this a man box issue or is it just a human issue? Or as we talked about last season, women are sometimes find themselves in the man box as well. And I certainly have felt exactly what you described. And so I was reflecting on my own experience and I internalize a lot of things. I'm not good at talking to people about my emotions and feelings. <laughs> and, and yet I have people in my personal network that I can go to and I can talk to. I don't often get there quickly enough. Like I should talk to people sooner. But as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, I felt that frustration and anger and isolation and aloneness and 
I've been fortunate, I think, that sometimes it's pretty obvious when I'm not my usual happy self and someone will reach out to me and, and talk to me about it. But a lot of people don't have that. And thinking about then how does that play out? So you talk about all these hurdles. So you are going through a, a rough period that is weighing on you and making you angry or sad or frustrated and you aren't able to get over, like even if you recognize that this is going on, which I think a lot of people don't have that self-awareness, um, if you have no one to talk with or you have no resources and our health system is not set up to make that easy for people, then yeah, where does that go? You combine that with the easy access to guns, it doesn't take a huge leap to see that connection. Mm -hmm. And, and ironically, the acceptable man box alternative for men in expressing themselves is through violence, not through grabbing a rifle and killing a bunch of people, but anger and, you know, putting up your dukes and, mm -hmm. and all that. That's, that's far more acceptable, I think, than a man standing up or, you know, just admitting to other people, look, I've, I've needed to go to therapy, or I, 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 do you know of a therapist that I can go mm -hmm. and see that you'd recommend? You never hear it. A lot of men might know that they have a problem, but they're not going to take that step of finding someone. If they try to find someone, like I said, it's, it's virtually impossible, even if you have good insurance. So the system is created to keep men within that box health services isn't created to um, accommodate the a true understanding of yeah. the process men go through. Well, I think there is some hope, though. Um, last year, there was a bit of an outcry against this, but the American Psychiatric Association, I think, came up with new guidelines for the mental health treatment of men. And it walks through a lot of the man box issues and the masculinity issues. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, while that was created to get at this very problem, to help mental health professionals better meet men where they need to be met in their mental health needs, there was this outcry against it because it was making men look bad and making them look weak. And it was like the, it was like the man box reaction to trying to help with the man box impacts on men. Like in the 70s, there was the American Psych Psychiatric Association's uh, guidelines for treating women. Like There's specific issues for women. Mm. Um, so that was already out there. It had just never been addressed for men. And when this came out, I think maybe it wasn't messaged well or the context wasn't clear and it was seen as, you know, last year was basically like the attack on men from a lot of male perspectives, I think. You know, the the... Me Too backlash, and then this thing came out, and it's like, oh, what's wrong? Why do we have to fix men? We're not broken. So I think it was that kind of reaction to it. So that strikes me as an added hurdle of if you, even if you know that you need some help, if it is a hit on your masculinity to ask for it because mm -hmm. it suggests that something's wrong with you yep. when you don't think something's wrong with you, you're never going to get that help. Yeah, men who do uh, find help, find a therapist, and go through the process however long, whether it's one session or on a continuing basis, it's largely done in the closet. 
so there's not that uh, dialogue between two men that are seeking help um, and just acknowledging and knowing that there's other other men out there that are going through the same struggles. Well, I was reading a different article than I think the one I sent to you that um, was looking at the mass shootings over time and like 1966 was the first the first like recorded mass shooting in America and since then all but three of the mass shootings in our country have been carried out by men mm-hmm. one of the articles I looked at was making this connection between behavior that precedes the mass shooting and the mass shooting itself and what they found was that most of the men who carried out these mass shootings had indicators before. It wasn't like all of a sudden someone goes out and shoots up tens of people. And they found that there was a lot of domestic abuse. There was violence against women. Um, All of these maybe lesser violent acts than a mass shooting that if we were having open conversations about mental health or isolation or anger or frustration, then we might be able to head some of those things off. Like if it wasn't so stigmatized just to talk about it. And that gets into a lot of different things, domestic violence, you know, having the system in place where it's safe for women to report, it's safe for men to get help. Um, There's so many different ways that our society discourages seeking help or admitting weakness, that it's like this boiling pot of anger and frustration and isolation that naturally, I mean, we've seen it now, it just keeps overflowing into mass shootings. Do women look at these men that go and commit these heinous crimes the same way that I think men do. How do men see them? Men think of those men as like, well, they're not one of us. They couldn't mm-hmm. handle it like mm-hmm. we all can. Mm-hmm. And they broke and did something very bad. Mm-hmm. There's no ownership of like, we, we've kind of helped create this at all. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that women are thinking, oh, we've helped create this or society has created this. I think it's changing a little bit. I think there's more dialogue coming out and connections being made, like uh, the violence against women. Or I've seen more of a sense of this being a, a man problem. Mm. Like it's not just some guy who had an isolated in- experience and it feels like there's more of a connection being made as more of these happen, we this have more a, data points. This is a man issue. It's a man issue. Like, that's the... The men are the ones that are buying the guns that are committing more of these uh, mass shootings as well as homicides. Yeah, it, I do think that it is increasingly being viewed as men and violence. If you want to back up to like childhood and the fascination that that boys have with guns, I'd be happy to share that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know yeah. If that let's be talk at all, about that. Yes. That'll be I mean, useful. Uh, yeah. All right. T- I, tell me your thoughts on that. I loved loved guns. What did you love about them? There's there's something dangerous about guns, kind of like you know little boys like firecrackers. 
and guns and knives and throwing stars and, and anything that could cut or hurt you that you had to handle with care that you weren't supposed to have. There's a taboo around it. And many of the movies that we watched when we were too young to watch them, all the, the cool heroes had guns. You know, there was yeah. G.I. Joe uh, cartoons that we were raised on and everybody was shooting at somebody else, you know. Yeah. Um, and even if they didn't have guns, you know, if it was Wile E. Coyote and... Uh, the Roadrunner. The Roadrunner. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, is that the Roadrunner's name? It's all violence, you know? Yeah. And um, so whenever we had a moment, we were outside and we said, do you want to go play guns? It wasn't like, do you want to go play war? It was like, let's go play guns, mm. which meant that we were on different teams and we would just, you know, hide around the neighborhood and shoot each other. Um, my dad was uh, like a, uh, really into history and World War II history. So I remember sitting and watching like every documentary on World War II with him and um, I was just so fascinated by it. And just that being young, thinking it was cool and like, oh my gosh, I'd, I would have loved to go and fight the Nazis or wherever, really? you know. And so the more you, you learn. you saw those documentaries and you had a positive reaction to them? Po I wouldn't say positive. It gave me a charge. It, wow. it, it, it looked exciting and mm. dangerous mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, a boy's jump their BMX bikes off big jumps. And it's that thrill that attracted me and I know other, other kids um, to, to guns and maybe that gun culture, you know? Yeah. And hoping, you know, when we, you know, when we get old, you know, we're, we're gonna join the army and we're gonna do this and that. And you know, the more you read, the more you grow up, you distance yourself from that. Mm -hmm. At least I did. I can imagine that other men would have a similar first experience, but then, not go the different direction that you went. They would stay on that path with where guns is, guns are a big part of their lives. I think the more I read uh, memoirs and, and, and stories of young men that as I got older and became the age of these men, young men, still boys, 18, 19, mm -hmm. you learn about Vietnam, and I put myself in their shoes walking through the jungle of Vietnam or f flying over Berlin, whatever it is, I'm like, I don't, I would never want to do that, you know? And it really scared me. Um, it took the romance out of it. When you mentioned that y y you put yourself in the shoes of these 18, 19 year old boys and, and that had an impact on you, was the impact that, oh, if I were in their shoes, I could die? Or was it, I don't want to, kill someone else like what, what was all of it yeah all of it uh mostly i don't want to die nor do i want to sit in a foxhole or you know trek through the jungle for weeks months on end none of it sounded sexy at all mm -hmm. so you talked about this imagining yourself in the shoes of someone who is at war i wonder if it's an empathy thing like if you can empathize with someone who either is committing violence or is the um, target of that violence, mm -hmm. um, being able to see it in a way that brings out that hurt and the underlying pain that is causing whatever that violence is might be not only a way to avoid that path yourself, but a path to understanding as well. And I think it's really hard to understand people who commit that kind of violence. But it's something to think about.
empathy isn't something that you you uh, associate with with men past a particular age, right? There are gems out there. Yeah, but we you just know what need I mean? more of them. For the most yeah. part, uh, I'm not sure if a lot of men think in those terms. I would go out and see my aunt and uncle for a week each summer. Where were they? Where did they live? Kind of all over, but Flagstaff, and he flew for an airline, so he was based out of Memphis. So he lived in Mississippi, like right over the um, the border. And uh, I used to fly out there, and we'd wake up, and we'd fly fish in the morning, and then we'd pack up the Ford Bronco with uh, shotguns and go quail hunting. And that was the first experience I had with hunting on any level. The whole thing about quail hunting, we were, the first time I did it wasn't in summer, but it was in the winter. You go out into this field, and there's you know three or four of us. Everybody has shotguns. And there's a guide with a dog, and the dog goes and sniffs out where the quail are. And the quail are in these coveys, which is basically like a group of quail that are kind of in the grass, trying to keep warm, yeah. you know. The dog stops and points, they're pointers, and then you go out. There's a primary shooter, and then so they say, okay, Sam, you're going to go out and flush them out. Flushing them out means you basically kick them out of their little warm nest, and they just kind of flop on the ground for a while, disoriented, kind of like, what just happened? You know, I was warm, I was asleep, now I'm like out in the open. And you have to basically kick them until they start to flutter and fly away. So my notion of hunting and duck hunting is that you're shooting these ducks from like, you know, way up in the sky and you're lucky if you hit one. This was basically like what it felt like was murder to me. Like I was kicking these, these quail and they're waking up and they're kind of fluttering around and you have to keep kicking them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they, they take flight and oftentimes they take flight right in front of your barrel. And it's just, you, you pulverize them. Like there's, there's very little left after that. And if you miss, all the guns behind you open up. So if you miss, you are greeted with, you know, six or seven other shots going off behind you. Just boom, 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 boom. 14 years old, 13 or 14 when I first did it. And so when you ask like what changed your mind about guns, I think the actual practice of killing something you know, not just fantasizing about like, oh my God, Die Hard was the coolest movie. Wouldn't that be cool if we, the terrorists were around and all that? To actually being there yeah. and, you know, it's a quail. And I know like some people can listen to this and be like, well, hunting is hunting, you know? Like, where do you think you get your, um, food. your food from, yeah. you know? That came from a cow. Somebody had to kill that cow and you're eating it. Um, but being the instrument of death yeah. was uh, a shock to me. For me, I had to kind of cross the river in, mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, and that was important for me as, as a young boy at that age um, to truly understand the gravity of, of what a gun can do, even if it was just on a small little quail. Yeah. I wonder about the experience that other people have, could be male, could be female, but like that moment sounds pivotal that you have shot a living thing and I could see there being a spectrum of reactions to that. One of, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I never want to do that again. All the way to, wow, that was so invigorating. Yeah. 
I can't wait for my next hunt. Mm-hmm. And then what does that lead to? I don't know. Right. And there was a bit of that too. I'm not going to say that I wasn't, it didn't excite me. There's a confluence of emotions and feelings that you have. One of which is like, almost like the survival, like, wow, I survived that. Wow. Good for me. You know, like I didn't break down. I didn't shy away from a challenge getting back into the man box. You know, I did it. I conquered. I didn't let my uncle down by not pulling the trigger. Afterwards, we all were around uh, the Bronco and they were having, it was cold. They were having a little bit of scotch. They gave me a little scotch. I felt like I was a man at that point. Like I had crossed the river, you know. Was there a feeling of power? No, but I projected that, I think. I knew that that's kind of the way you had to for whatever reason, I was like, that's, this is, you have to just kind of act like you're at ease with it. You know, you don't vocalize like that was traumatizing guys. Guess what? <laughs> like I'm a little, a little moved here. You know, my whole outlook on gun cl- guns, that, that doesn't happen. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was in yeah. Mississippi with yeah. gun toting, you know, men yeah. next to a Bronco. Like n- that's not the time that I'm going to like say, gather around guys. Let's, uh, let's chat about this. I'd like to process these feelings with you guys. That's never... <laughs> Even if I had a time machine, not happening. Let's say we we're trying to do something different in 2019 or 2020. And we want to reach out to people when they're stuck there. Mm-hmm. And they're in need of help and, and not seeking it out. Is there a way... Let's take men um, and the man box. Mm -hmm. And they're stuck in the man box. They may not even know Mm -hmm. about the man box. Is there a way that another man or a woman could reach out to the person who's in that space Mm -hmm. and start a conversation where the person who is in the man box would be able to accept that offer without the man box saying, nope, you don't get to show that you have any weakness, you don't get to accept help, you're not going to talk about this. Like, is there some way that another person could reach out to the man in the man box to, to have that kind of conversation? To, a, to an adult male? Yeah. yeah, It's very difficult. And case by case, I, I think, yeah, there might be. But when you were asking that question, I immediately thought about, um, and our solution to everything is get them early. Yeah. I think every boy growing up is trapped. The box is being formed around them. That feeling of isolation starts early, and I know that each boy deals with it in different ways. Some might be aware of it. A lot of it is an unaware feeling of like, I guess this is just what growing up is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, life. This is this the is way it is. Guy. I'm going to get in this box. Mm-hmm. Because that's the the forces that I'm that are surrounding me are kind of pushing me into this box. Every time I try to like maybe do something different, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm put back in. Yeah. There has to be some connection between that experience and um, a health professional that can help guide them and give them an alternative way of understanding and processing their emotions and events and how they interact with one another, how they interact with women. You got to get the ones that aren't aware that the the box is around them and it's getting built around them and it's getting tighter and tighter the the older that they get. Um, once they pass a particular age, to your question and to your point, I don't know if it's possible. I struggle with that, 
and I feel like I've I've gone to therapy. I know and have benefited from it. I know that it it, it works, mm-hmm. but I have a hard time getting over those hurdles. Yeah. Not many men are going to reach out for help, and loved ones and people in their lives have to understand that that the man's not going to do it on his own. The deck is stacked against stacked against him. I think that mass shootings are in response to a man feeling out of control. For these men that lose their jobs or whatever the tipping point is, it's kind of the end of the road for them, I would imagine. Their identity being taken away from them, they they didn't control that. What is there left to do but to respond in an angry, violent way? And the fact that they weren't in any type of meaningful long-term therapy to let some of that pressure out and delay that response, that seems like it's being talked about less. Yeah, I mean, if if no one reaches out or they're unable to reach out to someone else, yeah, I mean, just think about your your darkest days when you're not talking with someone about whatever is bothering you and it's just eating you up and you're... Maybe fanning the flames with your own thoughts. It's manic, and, you know. Yeah. I think we've all dipped into that mania where we're just like, I cannot control the racing thoughts and feelings and rage and disappointment and frustration that is coursing through my veins right now. Mm-hmm. Cannot. And if these men, if that's their daily, yeah. and then it just... It's just going to build up. Totally. Yeah. They're just seeing red. They're not thinking clearly. If you haven't seen it, on YouTube, there is the um, police interrogation of the Parkland shooter. It's heartbreaking. The attention should be with the victims and their families, but I think his own experience and response to what he did was totally overlooked. Not to say that it justifies what he did Mm -hmm. at all, but it is heartbreaking. I think people have such hurt and anger about these shootings that it's hard to see somebody, yeah, you're right, as a human, as opposed Mm -hmm. to a monster or an animal for behaving in that manner. Mm -hmm. But I think that you're right. I'm I'm hesitating because I don't want to watch it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to... Why? Yeah. You would, you would see the man box just completely break apart and yeah. see him for who he is. Yeah. A little boy, yeah. l- literally a little boy who can't stop crying. Hmm. And that's, that's the most heartbreaking part of it. And like, I hate to say it, um, I could identify with him, you know? Like I know the pressures. Yeah. And I wasn't, you know, obviously gonna go out and do what he did, but like, I went through some shit uh, growing up and in high school and feeling isolated and alienated and couldn't talk to anybody and just the feeling of like just being completely trapped. Okay, so you said you identify with a Parkland shooter. That okay. sounds kind of scary. Fact. What I do know. you mean by that? Right. After watching that video of his interrogation after he did it, I don't identify with the act, obviously. But I, I identify with 
the, the pain that he was expressing. What, what struck me is that I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry that he didn't have people in his life that cared enough to get him help. And this, I'm saying this without knowing who was doing what for him, mm-hmm. but obviously something went wrong somewhere and that there were symptoms that were either ignored or dismissed um, that didn't serve him or those victims, that community at all. It's hard to take all that away from the conversation and look at him as a human being, but he was a boy once, and whether he's bipolar or whatever whatever else was going on, if there was abuse, neglect, what have you, he started as an uncarved block, you know, and could have been steered in a different direction, and it went terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. So I think I identify with the version of himself before that all happened, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. when he was just a boy. I connected with him on, on that level for what it's worth.